You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center, and I am here today for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored with my wonderful, stunning, fantabulous co-host, Dr. Carrie Vediant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Hanging in there. Good. Hanging in there is a good description. There's, it is a mad dash between the end of between like the beginning of October through January 1st is, is just nuts. And it starts off with all of the Halloween craziness and which in my family, it's birthdays and it just goes from there. So yeah, the Christmas stuff is out in the malls. I was there yesterday and there's already a place for Santa in the mall already. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's I'm like Halloween's a week away and I'm like, Ooh, I gotta like get a few things still together and everything like that. Yeah. Somebody, I saw somebody had written something about the only thing that keeps Christmas stuff from being out in the stores in August is Halloween or something. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Hey, Abby, you you saw an interesting article that hit close to home for me today. I did. I was actually reading that antiquated thing called the newspaper this morning because it is Sunday morning. So I was reading the Sunday paper and I saw like the 10 best places to have a ghost tour. And so Susan two of lives, them are in my backyard. Yeah, Susan lives in New Braunfels. One is in New Braunfels and one is in San Antonio, which is really close too. So you've got two out of 10, 20%. And, it, and I, I really want to go do the, the New Braunfels one. One of the guides is somebody I went to high school with. And well, so I, wow. I really, for a long time, I've been like, I need to sign up. And I, I want somebody to go with me. You know, it's like, that's not <laughs> something fun to do by yourself. I'm I'm not scared, but I don't think it would be nearly. I think it would be a lot more fun with like friends. <laughs> well, Susan, what I really wanted to know about is one of they said in the article something about New Braunfels being this is a historic town with a murderous history. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> Who got murdered in New Braunfels? Do you know, or do you have to go um, on the ghost tour to find out? I, I am probably going to need to go on the ghost tour to find out. Okay. New Braunfels was founded around the 1830s, so I'm like, we only we don't have that long of a history. It's not like we were founded in like the 1600s or something. So honestly, our crime rate is pretty amazing. I think uh, Carrie would be with me on this. Your homework assignment is to go on that ghost tour and report back to us and tell us what it's like. It is. It is. And I've actually on the tour in San Antonio. So the ho- the main hotel that they talk about is the Minger Hotel, which is across Alamo Plaza. So the Alamo, like, yeah, you know, the Alamo, the yeah. Alamo. So it, it's, <laughs> it's right kind of across the street, sort of from there. And mm-hmm. I actually stayed in the Minger Hotel when I was in the high school, but that was before I realized it was a haunted hotel. Haunted so hotel like, yeah. yeah, it's one of those like, really cool historic hotels, but you know, they all have those little bitty tiny rooms. So if I go to San Antonio, it's not my favorite place to stay, but I would love to go on that tour as well. So when you guys come to Texas and come visit, that's going to be on our list. It's going to be on our list. We're going to need to do a guest tour too. I did one of the other places that was listed was Savannah and St. Augustine. And I've been on both of those, but St. Augustine was kind of creepy because you went through this old jail and they talked about hanging people and like 
doing bad things to him outside the jail. So oh. I'm sure there's a lot of haunted souls there probably. So I went on that one. That was kind of creepy too. So there's a museum here in Vegas that is, I forget the name, Zach. I imagine there's a lot of ghosts in Vegas. <laughs> I would imagine people, there too. There's been a lot of people knocked off over the years. <laughs> yeah. Like this guy, so this guy collects all of these supposedly haunted objects. And so there's like all these crazy looking dolls. There's like Jack Kevorkian's van. And oh. there's, I mean, it is, it's somewhere between spooky and grisly. Creepy creepy like it is and and they i went halloween a couple years ago and um it was an experience it was an experience so the next time you guys come out to vegas we can do that one too i think new braunfels version is going to be much more up my alley (laughs) okay so i will say i've been on the ghost tour in franklin tennessee and franklin tennessee hosted the bloodiest battle of the civil war and so all around here, people talk about things being haunted. And Tennessee was the last state to go into the Union or um, go into the Civil War and the first state to fall. So for like two years, Union troops occupied Franklin. And so anyway, so, and then there was a big battle and et cetera. So anyway, we have a good ghost tour, too, I think. Although I've not seen any ghost here yet. But <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, let's go to our question of the day. So. We are a same-sex couple, and my wife and I are working with a fertility clinic to start our family via IVF using a known donor. We feel so fortunate to have the known donor be our friend because we plan for him to be in our child's life. We were told by our endocrinologist that his sperm samples showed very low morphology, 2%, and said because of this, we should do ICSI for best chances of fertilization. After looking into ICSI, we are very nervous about the increased risk of imprinting disorder and developmental delays. Our question is, with 2% morphology, is there still hope for X to fertilize with conventional IVF so we don't have to worry about the risks of disorders, developmental issues associated with ICSI? Am I overblowing the risk? Hope to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Great question. Yeah, great question. I would say to our listeners that we in Nashville probably do ICSI on 98% of the people that come through. Um, We know that we're going to get good fertilization with that. Anytime there's a change in the sperm, certainly with the morphology or the numbers, just the concern is you literally have one shot at it. There's a time frame for when your eggs have to be fertilized. And if in that window, they're not fertilized, then you can't use them. And so, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't look into that, see what would happen either way. But generally, ICSI is considered a pretty safe process. We've been doing it for, I don't know, 20 or 25 years. There's a small risk of imprinting abnormalities, but it is so small. It's kind of like a lightning bolt almost hitting you from the sky. So, and I personally can speak with, I mean, I, I, with my IVF cycle, I did ICSI and I didn't have any qualms about it. And and so, you know, generally it's something we do commonly. And I think the bigger risk would be that if you didn't do ICSI, you wouldn't have good fertilization and you may only have one or two eggs that fertilize and may, maybe none to transfer. So based on that information, I would definitely say that you should do ICSI. What, what are your, your thoughts, thoughts Carrie? Carrie? I think you summed it up really nicely. I mean, we, I would agree we, in Vegas, we do probably 90, 98, 99, like the vast majority <laughs> of cycles are all ICSI because it helped nails down the time. If someone really asks for conventional insemination, sure, we do it. But given that we have been doing all ICSI, majority ICSI for so many years, usually IVF patients, if there's a problem, they come back to you um, and you you know about it. 
because it's the, the association with, I did this, therefore, what problems did I cause? And so they'll, they'll come back and they'll tell you. And, and it's just not something we hear a whole lot about. And so, you know, I probably wouldn't lose a whole lot of sleep about that. But, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a make or break in either direction. It's just, you want to give yourself the best chance you can. So ICSI is one way to help that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We also do probably 98, 99% ICSI. We, we don't do it if somebody requests it and, it and it's a reasonable request. But in most of our patients, we do do ICSI. However, if it is something that is heavily weighing on your heart, one thing you might consider doing is do a split enzyme. So what, mm-hmm. what that means is that you can do maybe half of your eggs with ICSI and half of your eggs with standard your insemination. That way you really don't put all of your eggs in one basket. (laughs) And that may make you feel better. I mean, I I totally agree with Abby and Carrie that I really wouldn't lose sleep about imprinting disorders and things like that related to ICSI. But if it's something that you just really can't get past, but you are nervous about fertilization, obviously with a 2% morphology, that that may be kind of maybe a happy medium that you may be able to accomplish. So good stuff, good stuff. Well, today we are going to talk about embryo donation. So Carrie, can you kind of give our listeners an idea of what is the basic premise of embryo donation? So the basic premise of embryo donation is that there is a couple desiring to build their family and for- Or individual- or individual, also true story, someone who wants to build their family where for whatever reason, whether that's medical, personal, ethical, religious, you know, whatever it may be, they cannot do it using their own biological material or do not want to use it during their own, using their own biological material. And so they're looking to use an embryo that has been created elsewhere. So, you know, kind of the sister creation method to this is using egg donation and sperm donation. So with an egg donor, sperm donor, you have all kinds of choice about who is providing the egg and who is providing the sperm. Whereas with embryo donation, these are embryos that already have been created by another couple or individual. And the people responsible for those embryos have said, okay, my family is the size that I desire. I no longer need these embryos. I want to give them to someone else to use. And the uterus is prepared and um, the embryo gets transferred into it. That's kind of it in... In a nutshell, it's someone who either can't, won't, doesn't want to, whatever, use their own biologic material. So they're they're working with someone else's biological material who has voluntarily said, I really want to help somebody else get pregnant using my embryos because my family is complete. So Abby, when somebody has decided that they want to use donor embryos, where do they start? So I think it's a little bit different depending on what fertility center you go to. Some fertility centers like ours have patients that maybe have decided they've completed their family and they don't want to discard their embryos. And so 
they basically sign a release saying they'll let us use their embryos for patients that are in our practice or for other people that come to our practice. Sometimes they'll put caveats like they have to be 200 miles away from the city or they have to have certain religious background or ethnic background. We certainly try and honor those things. Some patients actually have gone on the web and through chat rooms or different ways have found people who are looking for more of an open type adoption or of the embryos or, or want to give those embryos to somebody that they feel comfortable with. So I've also had patients that have been able to do it that way as well. There are also a number of embryo banks out there. What I have seen in my practice is if you go through your local clinic or something like that, it tends to be a little less arduous of a process as compared to if you go to a quote embryo bank. Um, Most of the embryo banks are going to require you to essentially do an application kind of like you would do for an adoption. Um, You have to be chosen. Most of those make you do home studies, things like that. Whereas there are options out there that don't necessarily have you go through some of those steps. Um, What types of things do you get to know about, you know, the people who are donating those embryos? So usually you get to know all of the basic relevant information. I mean, you're going to get to know the age of the egg provider and the sperm provider at the time that the embryos were created. Um, You'll get to know some of the basic information, hair color, eye color, you know, ethnic background, uh, to the extent that anybody knows that. Um, (laughs) You'll know, you'll usually get to know any family history background. So they'll fill out general forms and it'll be you know, usually cross-linked with clinic records of, you know, somebody had a history of high blood pressure, somebody's grandmother had breast cancer, like that, that type of general information. Um, there's usually some basic, uh, it's not fluffy information, but fluffy information about the, the people, you know, they like to garden and take long walks on the beach. And then you'll also get any of the relevant embryo information. So things like genetic testing, if that was done, then you would know that. Um, It's not necessarily going to be a requirement because it's totally based off what that couple decided to do in their decisions as they were going through the process. You'll oftentimes find out if there were any live births from those embryos. In general, there are, but knowing whether there was one versus four or five, you know, maybe of interest, that's the general information you're going to get. And the other thing to know about once you get that information, there's really no changing it. It is what it is because it's, it's this couple and just how they, they had whatever characteristics they had, whether it was an egg donor, a sperm donor, or a, a, a couple, you know, they're, They are who they are, and you just work with what you got. Yeah, and I think the other issue that really has arisen over the past several years has to do with the genetics of the embryo. And and for most of our donations in Nashville, it's an anonymous process, and both partners agree to that. You know, one partner agrees that they're going to donate their embryos, and they'll never seek the couple out that receives them, and vice versa. But as we all know now, with Ancestry.com and 23andMe, if you've ever done it before, You can find out who first-degree relatives are, meaning mother, father, brother, sister, and even cousins going down several generations. And so, you know, we always prepare our patients that probably someday when your child or if your child ever does this, very high likelihood that they're going to be able to meet their biologic parents and, and find out if they have biologic siblings. And so I think that's just kind of one other layer that didn't used to be there. As part of this process, I think we probably all do this. We send 
patients for implications counseling, just to talk about those things that maybe you haven't thought about. And, you know, we really encourage families to be open about what they've done because family secrets are generally not good. So, you know, you kind of talk to a counselor about, you know, what's the best way to tell my child and when do I tell my child and how do I tell my child? And I think it's good for couples who are receiving embryos and certainly even sometimes for couples that are donating embryos. So I think that's just an important thing to kind of know about this process. So once you have embryos, what do you do with them? Like how, how, how would I get pregnant using donor embryos? So first part of that is the screening that we do on the couple to ensure that it's appropriate for them to donate their embryos. So normally when you have somebody who's going to donate genetic material, gametes, eggs and sperm, you have to go through a a pretty strict donation process that is regulated by the, the FDA. And so that means they go through very specific blood work that is sent to a specific lab, not just your local local reference lab. It goes out to um, a particular place that's held to an even higher or higher standard. They answer a very long questionnaire that assesses risk and they get a physical exam. And so typically all of those actions are done at the time that someone is providing the eggs or providing sperm. Well, with embryo donation, they don't know that they're going to donate until long after that's done. So we go back and we do it in retrospect um, with the thought of anything, any risk they have have only increased. So if you pick up something, you've got it. Those embryos don't go out for donation. If you don't pick up something, then you were probably clear at the time of embryo creation. Because most of the big things that we worry about, HIV, syphilis, hepatitis, those things, once they register, they register for life through through the antibody testing. So the creators of the embryo will have all of that testing done. And in most clinics, there's a wait period. So when someone says, we're going to donate our embryos, they're not just released the very next day after testing is completed. There's there's oftentimes a bit of a, a gap so that everything can settle. And then the profiles are of those embryos are sent out to people who are interested. So if you come to the clinic and say, I really want to do embryo donation, we're going to say, okay, these are the profiles we have available. In our clinic, it's first come, first serve. As soon as someone says, okay, these are the ones that I want and they and they mark those, then, then that's how we do it. And then we prepare the uterus. And we get the basic testing done. So we check your blood work. We check whatever uterine testing that particular clinic does. And we make sure that the foundation is good. Um, and from that point, we go into a frozen embryo transfer cycle. So Abby, what's involved in a frozen embryo transfer cycle? So we're trying to create an environment in the uterus as if the patient ovulated an egg and is the embryo is about to implant. And so it's a really similar preparation to what we use when it's someone's own embryo. So it really doesn't matter where the embryo comes from. But essentially what we want to do is kind of shut down the patient's hormones so they don't kind of compete and cause issues with the cycle. So we do that a lot of times with birth control pills initially and then with another drug called Lupron. And then the main way that we build the lining up is through estrogen. There's different ways it can be given. It can be given with pills or patches or injections, usually for a period of about three weeks or so. And of course, ahead of time, we want to check the endometrium to make sure there's no polyps or anything growing within the environment that would make it harder for pregnancy to implant. And once we start to stimulate the patient with the hormones, about three weeks later, we'll look with ultrasound. And really, the main things that we're looking for are the thickness of the endometrial lining and kind of its appearance. And so at that point, if the lining looks like it's a good place for an embryo to implant, we start progesterone. Usually, it's an intramuscular shot that we start for roughly about 
five and a half days or so. And then at the end of that time period, that's when we would transfer the embryo. And because the patient hasn't actually ovulated and is not producing her own hormones, we have to supplement both estrogen and progesterone throughout the length, generally of the first 12 weeks, the first trimester until the baby's placenta can take over. And at that point, the patient's kind of on autopilot and doesn't have to be on any other hormones. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, A few things that I often kind of like my words of advice for patients who are thinking about using embryo donation kind of things for them to think about is that um, when you are selecting embryos, there, there is a balance in what you're thinking about in that most likely this is an embryo from a successful cohort, because that's the reason most people have given these embryos up for other people to potentially acquire. But on the other side of that, realize that technically, usually the best quality embryos have often been used. It doesn't necessarily mean meaning that the remaining embryos are poor quality, but it, it is something for you to kind of keep an eye on. Other things are that being aware of how the embryos require preserved. So embryos that are getting released for embryo adoption now may have been cryopreserved 10, 15 years ago when we used a different type of process called a slow freeze process versus vitrification, which is kind of a dehydration and quick freeze type of process. Now, granted, we've gotten, all of us have probably gotten lots of people pregnant or maybe not Carrie, but at least Abby and I have gotten plenty of people (laughs) pregnant from slow frozen embryos, but they do have a slightly um, lower survival rate from the freeze and thaw process. Okay. And then as y'all mentioned earlier, being aware that some embryos may have been chromosome tested, some of them may not have been through PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing. Just as y'all had mentioned, it's kind of usually a kind of a first come first serve type of process. And so PGT embryos tend to go very quickly. They're selected very quickly because there's been more money put into them. So you're kind of getting more for your dollar and you have more information about your embryos. And so being aware that if you want PGTA tested embryos and they're available, like they may not be available tomorrow. So it's something that you really kind of have to really know if we're going to jump on this, if, if it happens, but also knowing that you could, if you chose, have your embryos warmed, tested and refrozen. And most clinics are going to be able to do that as well. One other thing I was going to say too, and I don't know about your office, Susan, but I know with our office, you know, some people sort of have the make mistaken assumption that there's just all these just tons and tons of extra embryos laying around that need to be adopted or, or, or transferred. And generally, at least in our office, that's not really the case. We have a wait list of about nine to 12 months. Now it's from a financial perspective, it's a lot less expensive to use a donor embryo than, you know, going through using an egg donor and maybe a sperm donor to create an embryo if you're single or or using an egg donor with, a, with your husband's sperm or your partner's sperm. Um, so it's less expensive, but I would just echo what Susan says. Most of our embryos are not PGT tested. They're, they're embryos that have been around a little bit longer and a lot of times they've not been PGT tested. Now, the question I commonly get is how long can an embryo survive when it's frozen? And the answer is we really don't know. We actually looked at it for our particular center and we transferred a 14-year-old embryo that actually resulted in a live-born healthy baby. So that's our that's our number for now. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at that in Texas, but um, I just think that's kind of interesting thing to know and just kind of amazing, really. <laughs> Almost so miraculous. 
there was the case, I want to say it was at Baylor. I know it was in Texas somewhere where it was an embryo that was... No, actually, that was um, a physician in Knoxville, Jeff Keenan. He, he transferred a 24-year-old embryo into a 25-year-old woman, and that patient conceived and had a healthy baby. And that's what actually prompted us to go, hmm, I wonder how old we've, you know, how, how old the longest embryo is that, that's been frozen has survived and, and resulted in a baby. So, yeah, yeah. so tw- I think that's the record. Kind of back to what Abby was saying, I think perception is based on the fact that there are truly, there are lots of embryos out there that aren't going to be used. Now, most of those embryos have not been relinquished for embryo adoption. We don't have quite the same amount of a wait list as you guys do, but I do know that I think we have quite a few going in, but we have them going out just as quickly. So there's there's a pretty rapid turnover. So like I said, I, I, I tell people, if there's something you like, you need to jump on it today and not tomorrow. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure to meet with you guys again. It's always so much fun. And to our audience, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.sunsensored to submit specific questions. All of the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc section. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.